on this episode of Apartment 309 Podcast. Four unnerving stories about strange and unexplained happenings. A home intruder that no one else can see. A gift from an unknown watcher. A sinister secret in the woods. And a mother's worst fear come to life. We hope you'll join us. Welcome to Apartment 309 Podcast, the one-sided storytelling podcast where I dive into true crime or the paranormal and tell it to my captive audience boyfriend while he reacts occasionally, basically just recording part of our normal day. I'm Lauren. And I'm Eric. And we live in Apartment, in apartment 309. 309. Happy Saturday. It is Saturday. It is. I enjoy that. I love Saturday. We don't have a set schedule, so we don't know what day it is. No. Most of the time. But it's good. We got a storm rolling in. It's windy. Oh my gosh, it's so windy. I almost got blown over. (laughs) Cool. Well, today we are going to read through some amazing tales that I found on Reddit. Uh, They're all by one Reddit user named Priestess of Spiders. Absolutely incredible storyteller to the point where I was looking for other stories and stuff to read. And this, I just went on to their postings oh my gosh oh yeah just phenomenal storytellers so that's what we're gonna focus on today nice and in the spirit of spoopy season i tried to find stories that kind of get the mind worrying uh, make you a little uncomfortable a little unnerved with like all the possibilities of the unknown and the unexplainable oh spooky spooky And before we jump into anything, um, just wanted to reiterate, say again, we love you guys so much and would appreciate it if you like listening to us, if you're following us, um, let somebody you know, know about us. We want to get the word out about A309. Um, You can leave a review, uh, rate us. Anything you do is going to help pump us into that algorithm to kind of reach more ears. We are coming up on our six-month anniversary of putting out this podcast. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I think we started in April. And Six months, baby. It's We are creeping up on October here. Spoopy season. It is. Anyway, so that, uh, yeah, if you wouldn't, wouldn't mind, tell somebody you know. I tell everybody I know, and they are sick of hearing about it. <laughs> but uh, we're also considering potentially making some merch. Definitely not going to be in the near future. Uh, We've got a lot going on here, uh, but we are trying to figure out what would be the best option. I know I came up with a design and Eric made it. Um, Maybe we can put a couple samples of that out there, uh, see if there's anything. I know I'd probably want a hoodie. Uh, What do you guys want? Shirts, hoodies, hats? Stickers. I kind of want a sticker on my car. Sticker is a good idea. I could. I don't know yet. Anyway. Drop us a comment on Instagram. Maybe I'll post some pictures. I know I did put the uh, questionnaire out, but it's only on Spotify right now about the Mexican aliens or the Peruvian aliens in Mexico. Um, I'll see what I can do with Instagram. I don't think we have enough on there to do a poll, but we can at least try to do a comment poll. It sounds like a good movie title. 
Peruvian aliens in Mexico. Oh, I was like Instagram poll. No, Peruvian <laughs> aliens in Mexico. Kind of like uh, an American werewolf in London. <laughs> Peruvian aliens in Mexico. They're just like coughing up dust everywhere. They are dust. They are made out of dust. Just <laughs> Okay, well, that's what we talked about last time, but are you got any more? No. Okay. Yeah, I think you just told me you had something in the news. Yeah, I got to I got to ask you. So, did you hear that they arrested the last living suspect in the shooting of Tupac Shakur? Shut up. What? Yeah. Apparently not the guy necessarily that they think shot, but his name is Dwayne Keefe D Davis. So, um according to AP News, uh, he's been arrested for the 1996 killing of rapper Tupac Shakur. What? Wait, no. Where did he crawl out from? What happened? No, he's been around. I guess he's, uh, let's see, he was involved with um, the opposing record label that was known. So he was associated with Bad Boy Records, which was which represented Biggie Smalls. And they were, you know, in a rivalry, so to speak, with Death Row, which is where Tupac was. But he's been talking about it for a long time apparently about being involved for years and okay. then was he like a like, hired hitman does he do this for a living is this the only one that he did like what do we know i don't i haven't seen anything about the reason but just his association with bad boy records and i have heard somewhere this is not in any news article but people say p diddy ordered the hit on Tupac. There had been a lot of, Tupac said when he was alive, allegedly, (laughs) Tupac said when he was alive that P. Diddy and people at Bad Boy Records were trying to kill him. He actually had been shot before and he said he went to the hospital and recovered but sometime in like 95, 94, 95, something like that. He He had been in the hospital because he was shot and he believed that it was because of P. Diddy and the people at Bad Boy Records. Dude, I don't get that. Like, I don't get what they would get out of ending a rival like that, killing somebody. What do you get out of that? How does that help your record label? How does that help you? Like, what do you have to gain? I don't know. I'm not the one to ask about that. I don't know. Uh, they say that he wouldn't have been the one that before? was shot, but that he he says in his memoirs that he was the front passenger of the Cadillac and had slipped a gun into the back seat from where he said the shots were fired. So he implicated his nephew, Orlando, quote, Baby Lane Anderson, saying he was one of the two people in the back seat. Uh, Anderson, known rival of Shakur, had been involved in a casino brawl with the rapper shortly before the shooting. There's that famous uh, footage, have you ever seen that, of Tupac the night that he died and he was in a casino? No. And he he had started fighting somebody, so I think what they're... And it's saying is that it was associated with that. A lot of people always thought that, that it was had something to do with the like very public on camera fight that Tupac had in a casino right before, like moments before. Good God. It's it's just crazy because this is like a, one of those big stories, you know, yeah, growing was, up. What, 30 years ago? Yeah, almost? 1996. So it's a story you hear, you know, we always heard growing up that it was a mystery. And yeah. Uh, who knows, maybe this might have something down the line to lead us towards who ultimately was responsible, and maybe they'll find out who killed Biggie. Interesting. Well, I know with uh, Tupac, there's all those rumors that he's still alive and stuff. 
Right. Yeah. Living in Cuba. Oh, no, I, I didn't go that into it. I just know it's one of those. I've actually looked really far into it. They they think that, I mean, the people that are, I Who's don't think, he, I think he was Eric? dead. I think he's dead. But he, people say that he might have left to Cuba because he had family there the sh- that had a Shakur name. I think it was his aunt. Huh. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah, I have never looked into that. Hmm. There's a that's a rabbit hole to jump down the Tupac conspiracy. That's crazy. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Dwayne, Big Daddy D. What did they call Big him? Daddy D? Big uh, Keefy D. Oh, Keefy D. <laughs> oh, he done it now. Oh, he done did it. That's uh that would be one of those crazy ones. Like if you could actually keep that secret. No, he couldn't. He was talking all about it for years. <laughs> he put it in his memoirs. But that's the whole thing. He wrote books. <laughs> right. But it's a shady thing. I mean, I don't really, I don't buy it. Or at least if you've looked into the Tupac murders, murder, there's a lot of strange coincidences and unanswered questions about what was put out in the media and about motivations. A lot of people thought that it was, you know, government officials that end, ultimately ended his life. Hmm. Um. Yeah, a lot of questions there. Maybe one day we'll dive deeper into it. Interesante. That's all I got. Well, thank you. Thanks for sharing. You're welcome. I'll be here all week. Apartment 309 podcast. <laughs> <laughs> You're stuck with me, babe. Right. <laughs> babe. It's gross. Okay, anyway. Great. Um. Well, should we go ahead and get into the stories? Spooky. Spoopy. Spoopy season. It is. Yeah, boy. Is today the first? No, it's not. It's almost. Oh, right, right. I can see it. It's so close. It's September 30th, and I knew that and did not have to look at a calendar. It's coming. Yeah, boy. It's uh, it's my favorite time of year because mostly the weather, but also the vibes. Spooky vibes. Fall vibes. I love it. Oh, I see. It's beautiful. It's harvest season. Fruits of your labor. We all dredged through the summer and made it through them sweaty months, and now it's sweater weather. And for all of your sacrifices, you get pumpkins. You have to pay pay for them, though. You have to buy them. Yeah, and also I'm allergic to them. But we could go raid our friend's yard because he's growing pumpkins, and I feel like he may or may not notice for 24 hours, and we could just get away with the pumpkins and tell him we bought them. That's true. From the store. Pumpkin thieves. We thieves. Could- Thieve the pumpkins. It'd be good. All right. We'll set that up at a later time. Perfect. Are you ready for our first story by Priestess of Spiders? Ooh. If you're on Reddit, you should go follow this account. Incredible. This one is titled, There is someone living in my house who only I can see. Ooh, okay. I know how it sounds. Believe me, I do. When I tell you that there is someone else living inside my home who only I am able to see, your first conclusion is probably that I'm suffering from hallucinations. That's what I initially believed as well. I think the first sign of my unwanted guest was a couple weeks ago. I was putting in a load of laundry only to notice that the back door was slightly ajar. Seeing the darkness outside contrasting with the light of the laundry room filled me with an odd sort of dread. My husband and I lived in a fairly safe neighborhood, so I shouldn't have been too worried about the possibility of somebody sneaking in, but it still felt like someone had trodden on my grave nonetheless. Pulling myself together, I closed the door, locked it, and got back to work with the laundry, trying to put what I thought was simple paranoia out of my head. 
As I clicked the lock shut, I swore I heard something, like a faint breath right behind me, but when I turned my head, there was nothing there. Feeling a bit spooked, I headed back to the living room, gently reminding my husband not to leave the back door unlocked. I didn't actually see anything for a while, but I frequently felt like I was being observed. I'd be at home alone, watching TV, cleaning, doing some other mundane task when I would suddenly feel the hairs on the back of my neck stand on end. I'd turn around, and there wouldn't be anyone there. I would sometimes hear faint breathing, too, under the bed, from the closet, on the other side of the shower curtains while I was brushing my teeth. Whenever I'd check, though, I would be greeted with nothing, just empty space, though occasionally I could detect a faint, musty odor. This continued for about a week, and I was beginning to get quite jumpy. I started regularly checking the house from top to bottom every day, just making sure there wasn't any possibility of someone being there. I'd even look in the crawl space under the house with a flashlight. I never saw anything that even suggested there might have been an intruder. But the tension, the paranoia, it didn't go away. Then, finally, I saw him. It was late at night, and I was getting a glass of water. I was about to take a sip when I saw something reflected in the shiny black surface of the fridge. It was a pale face grinning at me from the shadows. Instantly, I wheeled around, dropping my glass in the process, causing it to shatter into a hundred pieces on the tile floor. I hardly noticed, though, because the face was still there. It hadn't just been a trick of the light or a brief moment of pareidolia. It was actually a man peering at me from the shadows of the dining room. He was tall, but not unusually so, perhaps slightly shy of six feet. His face was stretched into a smug, close-lipped grin, with half-open eyes giving an impression of sleepy contentment. He was nude and entirely hairless. I screamed in horror and grabbed a cleaver from the knife rack, in case I needed to defend myself. Moments later, I heard my husband come rushing down the hallway asking what was wrong. As I watched, the naked intruder put a finger to his lips and shook his head. At this point, my husband burst into the room, clutching a baseball bat. What happened? What's wrong? He asked. Unable to speak, I pointed towards the strange man, handshaking. My husband looked into the dark, visibly straining his eyes. He moved closer to the intruder, who was still standing there, smiling smugly and staring at me with those half-lidded eyes. My husband turned on the light switch, fully illuminating the stranger, but still didn't seem to notice him. What's wrong, honey? I don't see anything my husband asked, standing less than a foot away from the intruder. I swallowed, trying as hard as I could to not look at the naked man in my dining room, his smile widening ever so slightly. It didn't help. I couldn't stop staring at him. I've never suffered from delusions, hallucinations, anxiety, any other symptom of mental illness, but at this moment, I thought I was going crazy. Oh, I, it's, it's nothing, dear. I, I thought I saw someone at the window, but I paused for a moment, staring at the nude man who was subtly nodding his head. It was, it was just a trick of the light. I'm sorry for waking you up. My husband set down the baseball bat and moved in for a hug, offering words of comfort as he wrapped his arms around me. I didn't hear any of them, though. I was still focused on the intruder. No matter how hard I tried to will him to disappear, he refused to cease existing. As I watched, he winked at me and took a seat at the table. My husband led me back to bed, but even as I followed him, our hands intertwined, I couldn't help but look back at the naked man in my, in my dining room, waving farewell at me slowly. 
His half-closed eyes reflected the faint light of the moon through the uncovered window with sickening malice. I didn't sleep at all that night. How could I? At that time, I was convinced something inside of me had snapped. But for the life of me, I couldn't think of anything that would have caused it. I'm a stay-at-home spouse, so it wasn't work that would be causing it, and I'd had ample opportunities for social interaction, so clearly I wasn't losing my mind due to isolation. As far as I knew, my family never had any special predilection towards mental illness. My thoughts raced through my mind like rats in a maze until the sun's rays poured through the bedroom window. I waited until my husband awoke before I felt comfortable leaving bed. I didn't much relish the thought of being the only one awake in case our unwanted guest was still here. When my husband finally got up late in the morning, I accompanied him out to have breakfast. To my horror, the intruder was still there, still sitting at the table. I processed for the first time that he was sitting in my usual spot. After my husband and I prepared a breakfast of scrambled eggs and sausages, we made our way to the table. The intruder sat there, unmoving, his half-closed eyes fixed on me. His smug smile seemed to dare me to try and sit down on his lap. I sat on the opposite side of the table as normal, next to my husband. I noticed him raise an eyebrow, but he didn't say anything, so I didn't explain myself. Throughout breakfast, my husband tried to make conversation, but I only answered with monosyllabic responses and grunts. It was hard to focus with the naked man staring at me. I finished breakfast quickly and got up to take a shower. I pretended not to notice as the intruder licked my plate clean. I triple-checked the bathroom door was locked and then took my time trying my best to relax in the hot water. I knew that I'd regret taking such a long shower when the water bill came in, but I tried not to focus on that. Instead, I just tried to calm myself down. It almost worked until I heard the dreadful squeaking of skin on glass. I pulled aside the curtain and screamed, Standing in front of the sink, head turned to look back at me, stood the intruder, smirking. On the mirror, drawn with a finger on the fogged surface, was a smiley face. Once again, my husband ran into the room at the sound of my cry, the door seemingly unlocked. Are you okay? he asked, concern on his face. He still didn't seem to notice the nude man. I'm fine, I lied. I, I just slipped. I'm all right. Did you... Did you draw that on the mirror? I pointed to the smiley face on the glass. I knew sometimes that things drawn in the condensation on mirrors could reappear once exposed to steam. I hoped to God that my husband had just idly doodled it. What, the smiley face? No, I don't think so. Why? Are you sure you're okay? He asked, visibly confused. The grin of the intruder, who only I could see, widened slightly. I mumbled out that I was fine and stepped out of the shower, putting on a bathrobe and trying as hard as I could not to accidentally brush the stranger. I felt his stare bore into the back of my skull as I left the bathroom on my way to get dressed. The next couple of days passed fairly similarly. No matter how hard I tried to will the intruder to vanish, he remained still. If I was watching TV with my husband, he would lie curled up under the coffee table, smirking at me. At dinner, he would sit in my regular chair, never breaking eye contact. He even started standing at the foot of my bed at night. I almost got used to it, and that was the worst part. I had just begun to accept that I had gone crazy, that this hallucinatory nudist was going to follow me around for the rest of my life. That's when he started escalating things. 
I woke up earlier than my husband and went out into the kitchen. I paused in front of the refrigerator and gasped in horror and disgust as I saw what was attached to it. Affixed to the refrigerator door with a cheap magnet was a sheet of printer paper covered in the most vile obscenities I had ever read. Slurs directed against my husband, crude drawings and caricatures, allegations that I was cheating on him with his best friend. I glanced over at the dining room and saw my guest grinning, half-closed eyes full of sadistic glee. I tore the sheet of paper into little pieces and tossed them in the recycling bin, refusing to acknowledge the intruder's presence. The rest of the day passed normally, though every time I looked over at the nude stranger, my stomach would lurch. Things escalated quickly after the note on the fridge. I found rusted nails left outside the bedroom door. An open condom, thankfully unused, was left on my husband's desk. One day, when I went to go make some oatmeal raisin cookies, I opened up the jar of raisins only to find they had been replaced with hundreds of dead flies, their wings meticulously plucked off. Every time I would look over at the intruder, he would make eye contact with me, as if daring me to speak out. And every time, I would say nothing. I would just clean up the mess. You have to understand, I was convinced that I was just doing these things on my own, as if I was in some sort of trance. I considered putting up security cameras to catch myself in the act, but I was horrified by the possibility that I might see something else. There was one thing that put doubt in my mind, however, something that made me feel like the intruder might be something real. Our cat, Horace, could see him too. Whenever the stranger was near him, Horace would hiss and his tail would puff up. On one occasion, he even swiped at him, drying blood. The intruder leapt backwards, and for the first time, I saw his half-closed eyes fully open, his smug grin turning into an open-toothed grimace of rage and pain. As the cat ran off to hide in the bedroom, my husband laughed and remarked, Silly critter, isn't he? I wonder what's gotten him so worked up. Two days ago came the final blow, which proved both the intruder's reality and the destruction of my marriage. I had gone out for a walk to try and clear my head a bit while my husband was at work. I decided to go on a fairly long hike through the nearby forest, and as a result, when I got back, it was nearly 5.30 When I stepped through my front door, the first thing I noticed was the smell. It was a metallic tang like rust or ozone. It was so alien to my home that it took me a few moments before my brain processed it. The scent of blood. Grabbing my walking stick like a club and fearing the worst, I crept towards the smell. It seemed to be emanating from the kitchen. As I rounded the corner, I tried my best not to vomit. The tile floor, cabinets, and fridge were all splattered with blood. Nailed to one of the higher cabinets, viscera dangling out like party streamers, was the mangled, flayed corpse of Horace. Scraps of fur and skin were strewn about the floor in disgusting heaps. In the corner covered in blood and scratches sat the cross-legged form of the intruder, grinning with infinite, repulsive smugness. Written on the wall in still-wet cat blood were the words, More than one way, with a smiley face underneath. I readied myself to attack the stranger to bash his brains with my improvised club, but it was at that instant that my husband came home. I don't want to relive that moment, the things that he said to me, my sobbing insistence that I didn't do this, the disbelief on my husband's face as I finally told him about the intruder, the disgusting, perverse delight in the stranger's smiles I pointed towards him. 
Finally, I once again gripped the walking stick and moved to kill the intruder, confident that maybe in his death he would become visible. But it didn't work. Whenever I moved to attack the intruder, he simply leapt out of the way, causing my strike to hit the floor, the counter, the wall. I only stopped when the walking stick finally broke and I fell down, sobbing on the blood-stained floor. My husband left in a hurry, yelling something about divorce. I half hoped that he would just call 911, that I'd be dragged off to a psychiatric institution and pumped full of drugs until I couldn't feel anything anymore. But no, he just ran off, slamming the door on his way out. I've been alone in the house with the intruder for over a day now. My husband's gone, and it's only gotten worse. He smashed all the breakable objects in the house, tore up the pillows and blankets, broke the TV with one of my husband's golf clubs. I tried to stop him at first, but no matter what I did, he always managed to evade my grasp. Eventually, I just gave up. I don't know what the intruder is or why he has done any of this. I know I didn't kill Horace. I know that I physically couldn't have. I was out hiking at the time. I don't understand why only I can see him. I'm so tired. I haven't slept in over 24 hours. Whenever I try to leave the house, the stranger blocks my way, and I'm too afraid to test the limits of his strength. I can't sleep. I'm horrified of what he might do now. I don't know what to do. Please help me. Well, that's creepy. You think it's her just doing that stuff, or...? I don't know. Cats can see all kinds of stuff we can't see. Yeah. Apparently they act like it, though. Kind of creepy. Also, not a huge fan of the nudity. <laughs> yeah, sounds weird. That, that naked guy his... ripping your cat up. I know, and he put his butthole all over the house, too, just oh sitting around on the furniture. <laughs> Allegedly. <laughs> it was gross. Yeah, weird. I just watched a movie recently that kind of reminds me of this. It's called The Chair, and it was made in 2023. It was made this year. So if you go look it up on YouTube, you can go find it. It's like 25 minutes long, I think. Okay. It's kind of along those lines of only one person seeing this like invisible intruder who's interacting with just them, but also like affecting things around them. Anyway, it tripped me out. I watched it way too late the other night, and it's a mind mind messer. Yeah. That one's creepy. Yeah. <laughs> I got like the thought of her running around trying to grab somebody, but they're like always just barely slipping away and breaking all your stuff. Oh yeah. And now you're breaking your stuff too and you just you can't hit them. That is one of the most frustrating things in the world when you can't get the fly. It's like when you uh when you're punching in your dreams. I can't say that I do that. And it's just often. like you're just punching through like water and you can't hit what you're <laughs> who you're punching it's weird punching in your dreams is one of the most nerving things unnerving it's nerving <laughs> what's the difference i don't know i just i recognize nerving as the word that i want to use okay all right but yeah just to not ever be able to hit your target to yeah. land a blow on it's something weird. that's hurting you mm -hmm. worst nightmare besides the old brown eye on the couch <laughs> worst i i uh, house guest ever could you imagine looking down and seeing somebody curled up underneath your coffee table and Naked. they're just like Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> that'd be uh, that'd almost be worse than like under the bed right because they know you can see them 
people under the bed? No, un- under a coffee table. Oh, okay. It's just like a glass top coffee table. Right. <laughs> see right through it, allegedly. All right, next story. Again, by Priestess of Spiders. I used to go hunting on the weekends. Something else hunted with me. You can tell when you're being watched. There's nothing to actually prove this, but everybody knows it's true. And as I crept my way through the woods, rifle in hand, I knew there was something else with me. I'd been out in the woods on weekend hunting trips for years, and this wasn't the first time I had felt this way. Usually it just meant I'd been noticed by whatever critter I'd set my sights on, though on one occasion my observer happened to be a rather irritable grizzly bear. This time, however, felt different. I stopped moving and peered around, trying to locate my unseen watcher. I scanned the trees carefully, wondering if perhaps I was just being paranoid. Everything was still, quiet, but the feeling remained. The gaze didn't feel hostile, like the staring of a predator stalking prey. Instead, it felt a little more curious, I guess. Like a child staring at you on the subway because you're dressed funny. After a few moments, I heard a soft noise somewhere in the distance, something not unlike the sounds of a set of wind chimes in the breeze, but not quite right. I turned to look but saw nothing, just a flutter of leaves. The sensation of being observed subsided, and I continued on my path trying my best to shrug it off. At the time, I figured it must have been a fellow hunter maybe wearing camouflage. It explained why I didn't see them and why the gaze didn't feel dangerous, but I couldn't quite put my finger on the sound I'd heard. For some reason, that noise bothered me, and I didn't understand why. Eventually, I reached the hunting blind I'd set up deep in the woods and settled in for a few hours of watchful relaxation. I'd brought a book with me so I wouldn't get too bored, though I needed to make sure I'd look up from time to time, lest a whole herd of deer appear right under my nose. I sat there in silence for a while, maybe an hour or two. It was peaceful that deep out in the forest, utterly tranquil. Part of why I went hunting was to get in touch with the sublimity of nature, to experience isolation from the busyness and squalor of urban life. It was pleasant to be alone, with only trees and birds for company. I was pondering this when suddenly I heard a twig snap. I put down my book quietly and looked out over my hunting blind, searching for the source of the sound. After a few moments of scanning the trees, I spotted my target. It was a buck with a magnificent rack of antlers, ten points at least and perfectly symmetrical. I'm not usually one for trophy hunting, I'm generally just in it for the meat and as an excuse to be outdoors, but even I was impressed. I figured at the very least they'd look good above my mantle. I raised my rifle and took aim through the scope, lining up the shot just right. I wasn't in any hurry. It hadn't seen me, so I had plenty of time to steady my breathing and place the buck squarely in my crosshairs. It would have been a clean kill, an instant painless death. That's when I got that feeling again. I knew that I was being watched. I could tell it was the same observer from earlier. I guess you could say the vibes were similar, but the intentions were different. Before, whatever was watching me had simply just been curious but now it felt angry, like it was jealous. The buck noticed something was wrong too. Its ears pricked up and it started to look around nervously. I knew that I had to take the shot right then or else I wouldn't have another chance. It was about to bolt. But something held me back. 
I heard that faint sound of something almost like wind chimes from behind me, and I closed my eyes, set down my rifle. I didn't know what was about to happen, but I sure as hell knew I didn't want to see it. This decision may have saved my life. The chimes grew louder and closer, mixed in with the sound of rushing wind. Whatever it was, it moved as quickly as a freight train. I heard it move past me with a rush of waves against the beach, the pseudo-musical chiming reaching an almost unbearable volume. I heard the buck cry out for just a split second before its scream was silenced with one of the most bizarre noises I've ever heard. I can't even hope to describe it accurately. It was somewhere between a slab of gelatin being pushed into a paper shredder and a crystal chandelier crashing on the floor, but even that doesn't fully do the hellish cacophony justice. It was so loud it made my ears ring and it was followed by such intense silence that I swear I thought I had gone deaf. The whole forest had gone still, as if every living thing was too scared to make a sound. Eventually, after the silence had passed and the birds started chirping again, I opened my eyes. There was nothing there. No buck, no blood, not even drag marks, nothing. It was as if it, it had never existed at all. It was going to get dark soon, so I quickly left the blind, hiking as quickly as possible back to camp. Perhaps a tad faster than was absolutely necessary, I kept listening intensely, horrified that I would hear the sound of something not quite like wind chimes coming towards me. Finally, I reached my tent. I was tempted to just pack up my gear and hightail it back to my truck, but by this point, it was so dark that I feared I would get lost if I tried. Instead, I simply slipped into my tent fully inside, fully clothed, with my fully loaded rifle next to me. I didn't sleep at all that night. At some point, around 2 or 3 a.m., I felt a presence outside my tent. The hairs on the back of my neck stood on end. That feeling of being watched came back in full force. After a few minutes of this, I faintly detected that sound of almost wind chimes. Very quiet from outside. I clutched my rifle with white knuckles. I wasn't going down without a fight. The chiming increased in intensity for a moment, followed by a loud, wet thump. Then the not-quite-wind chimes faded into the distance, and that paranoid sensation abruptly vanished. I still didn't leave my tent until the sun came out. I sat alone, terrified that that thing would come back until the first rays of sunlight peeked through the fabric of the tent. I know it's childish, but I felt safer in daylight. As I unzipped the tent flap and stepped outside, I detected a strange odor, almost like ozone. As I hastily packed my things to leave, I stepped in something which I quickly concluded must have been the source of the smell. It was a slimy pile of something that looked white and gray, like strings on the ground, along with a rounded object about the size of my fist. The texture was like undercooked noodles. I had no idea what I was looking at until I noticed the two small orbs connected to the rounded object. White strands. They were eyes. It was the entirety of the deer's central nervous system. They had been meticulously stripped of flesh, removed from the body. I've butchered deer before, but I'd never seen anything like this before, or since. It would take a master surgeon to do something with this much precision, pulling it out in one piece. I knew immediately that whatever had killed that buck left it here. An attempt at sharing the bounty. I don't know if the thing that took the deer 
even knew what parts we ate. I packed up my campsite as quickly as possible and practically ran back to my truck. I haven't been hunting since. A creepy. Well, a little creepy. Ripped out its old nervous system. Here's the hunting season. Right? Hey, if, if you're out there. That's that's nerving. <laughs> so nerving. <laughs> that's Just creepy. Just that uh, creepy feeling of being watched when you're alone and you're out there. Reminds me of the cow mutilations. Yeah. Gets pulled out. That's like, a, what is it? Predator. Alien vs. Predator, where Predator just rips out the spine and skull. Oh, yeah. Predators are ruthless. You just grab the brain and, like, all the connective tissue in the spine and just... Ooh. Just... <laughs> well, there you go. A whole lump of it. Brutal. A couple of meatballs. Ugh. Gross. I was going to make meatballs <laughs> later. Mm. Spaghetti mm. and meatballs. Yeah. That's what he had. Oh, there's probably some like Halloween how to make meatballs and paint them to look like an eyeball. You you would do like uh like the lighter color meat with uh yeah do like a olive turkey or chicken meatballs and then like put an all the the olive and a pimento on it and then you could dye the spaghetti noodles blue and red. <laughs> Ooh. I like it. And then you could make them uh, Peruvian Mexican by putting some Parmesan dust on them and just laying them in a bed of Parmesan dust. Right? <laughs> no Mexican Peruvian dish? <laughs> it's not. If you don't get that reference, don't write me. <laughs> they, well, we led with it, so. I know, right? Sort of. All right, so I have another one about deer. It's a little bit of a shorter one, and then we've got the one to end it all. Oh, snap. You're excited Keep I was. Almost like I was hiding under a coffee table. <laughs> what? Nothing. I've lost it. Okay. There's something wrong with the deer. A few days ago, I was out for a morning hike in my local forest on a trail I had walked hundreds of times before. It's a five-mile loop that passed by a creek, and it was just isolated enough to feel like a refreshing sojourn away from the suburbs without being too remote. It was a bit of a surprise to me when I came across a fence about a mile into my walk, right across where the trail normally continued. There was a sign that said something along the lines of, Government property, no trespassing. And I sighed in annoyance. I'd been down on this very same trail nearly every week prior, and the fence and sign had not been there before. I almost turned around, but it was such a nice day and the trail was so short I figured it wouldn't be too big of a deal if I just hopped the fence and finished my hike. I could find another route the next time. I didn't see any security cameras or anything else like that, so I simply hopped the fence and continued with my walk, annoyed that it may be the last time I'd be able to hike on that trail. It's such a beautiful area, and I stopped occasionally to listen to the birds or smell the fresh air. About two miles or so, I reached the creek and decided to sit down and enjoy the view. As I took a swig from my thermos of hot tea, listening to the gentle burbling of the nearby stream, I had almost forgotten about the fence. Out in the forest like this, I felt like I was one with the sublimity of nature. Everything was quiet, calm, serene. After a few minutes, though, I began to feel a little uneasy. It took me a moment to realize why. There were no birds singing. I hadn't noticed at first because the creek was so close by it provided its own ambient noise, but once I was aware of the bird's absence, the silence was deafening. 
A couple years back, I had an experience with a mountain lion. It was on a different trail, but in the same general part of the state. I recall that all the birds had gone quiet, instinctively silencing themselves in the presence of the beast. It had simply come down out of the bushes walking across the trail before looking at me curiously. Luckily, I had managed to keep my wits about me and succeeded in scaring off the cougar with a combination of yelling and flapping my jacket to make myself look bigger. As soon as it departed, the chirping of birds returned. After that day, I always carried a small air horn with me on my hikes. I reached into my bag and pulled out the air horn, looking around cautiously in search of anything that could be scaring off the birds. I didn't see anything and was almost on the verge of simply pressing down on the air horn preemptively when I heard a snap far away on my right. Turning, I strained my eyes to see what could have caused the noise. Air horn at the ready. Knowing what I do now, it is very possible that if I had chosen to use the horn, I wouldn't be here to tell my story. Though at first it blended in with the trees and brush, I noticed the deer rather quickly. I relaxed a little, exhaling in relief as I put the air horn back in my bag with my shaking hands. I still felt uneasy, though. Even at this distance, I could tell that there was something off about the animal, and the birds still hadn't returned. Staying quiet and low, I grabbed my binoculars and took a closer look at the distant deer. It was a buck with a beautiful set of antlers. This already struck me as somewhat odd, as most of the bucks around here had long since shed their antlers at this point. Even odder was the structure of the antlers. Rather than two large antlers with multiple points facing upwards, it seemed like six to ten spikes extending out of the skull. On further inspection, the deer was malnourished, emaciated even. Clumps of fur were missing. As I watched, it hobbled feebly on unsteady legs towards the river, lowering its head to drink. My thought was that it must have been suffering from chronic wasting disease, perhaps coupled with a bit of mange. I felt sorry for the animal and with sadness continued to watch it through my binoculars. Then its antlers twitched. It didn't look like they were going to fall off due to shedding or anything like that. The points moved outward slightly, like a hand unclenching from a fist. As soon as the antlers twitched, the deer stood up from its drink, eyes wide, almost as if it were standing at attention. As I watched, the now clearly articulated antlers further stretched, bending, until the points touched the side of the buck's head. Then they began to push. As I watched in stunned horror, something ripped itself out of the deer's skull with a disgusting crack of splintering bone. The objects I previously thought to be antlers were in fact spider-like legs of some horrible monstrosity. My hands were shaking too much to get a clear view, but it was crab-like in appearance, with sharp mouth parts and beady black eyes. As soon as the creature pulled itself fully free from the skull, the deer's corpse fell down limply into the stream, with its bright red blood polluting the fresh water. The antler thing scuttled off rapidly into the tree line, disappearing in an instant. As soon as it was out of sight, I ran as fast as I could down the trail, not stopping until I had jumped over another fence and gotten back into my car. I called out of work for the next couple of days, claiming that I was feeling ill, which, to be fair, I was. I have no possible idea what that thing was. All I do know is that I won't be going on any hikes again anytime soon. What the heck? Using it like a puppet. 
That's nuts. That's like those parasitic parasites or whatever. I think one of them is like a fungus or a bacteria. Cordyceps. I don't know. It's a specific type of cordyceps that mutates in the bugs and then makes them like freeze. Just pilots them around and rots them and feeds them. Yeah, takes them back to the hive. It's gross. Yeah. Although this one just split out of its head. It's kind of uh, like those face suckers, uh, alien face suckers. Oh, yeah. Where it's just in its head and then it's just like... Just gets on in you. Last story. All right. Again, Priestess of Spiders. Priestess of Spiders. Follow him on Reddit. My son's reflection is wrong. I have always been afraid of mirrors ever since I was a young child. I knew it was irrational, of course. I was never afraid when I would see my reflection in a puddle or on the darkened window of a shop as I walked down the street. It was specifically mirrors that made me uncomfortable. I always feared that I would see something other than myself looking back at me. This explains why I was less than thrilled to find the large antique silver mirror in the bedroom of the house I was renting. Where at my own place, I would have thrown it out then and there, leaving it on the curb and relying solely upon the mirror in the modern and well-kept bathrooms for all necessary reflective purposes. Alas, I didn't think my landlord would think too highly of his tenant tossing out expensive antique furniture, so I contented myself to simply move it to a spare room. I had moved to the house for the simple reason that it was fairly cheap and I didn't have much other choice. My husband passed away earlier that year due to a heart condition, leaving me simultaneously a widow and solely responsible for the care of our son, Chester. Fortunately, my husband's life insurance policy turned out to be reasonably generous, but I still needed to downgrade our living situation if I was to take care of Chester without another source of income. Beyond the obvious fact that I have now been left to raise a child without the assistance of a spouse, there is another reason why I cannot simply supplement my funds by taking on a job. Chester has autism. Now I want to make it clear, my son is not a cross to bear, not a weight on my shoulders. He is my child and I love him just as he is. I won't deny it can be difficult sometimes, but I can only imagine how hard it is for him. I find the terms high functioning and low functioning are relatively useless descriptors. Like most things in life, it is a tad more complicated than that. Chester is, generally speaking, nonverbal, and I've never known him to say more than 20 words in a single day. In addition, he tends to get overstimulated quickly from loud noises and often flaps his hands as a form of stimming, especially when he is having some difficulty expressing what he wants. The only behavior of his which ever actually frustrated me is his elopement which in the context of autism means that he has a tendency to wander off or run away whenever he feels stressed. We work around these traits, and I think generally I've been able to make life quite comfortable for him. Chester has always shown quite an aptitude for reading and writing despite his relatively young age of only nine years old. When he needed something that could not be articulated through gestures or single words, he would write it down on a whiteboard that I'd given him for that purpose. To help with his sensory issues regarding loud noises, I purchased a set of headphones for him, the same sort that one would wear at a gun range to prevent hearing loss. 
These generally aren't necessary within the confines of the house, but on those occasions when we do go out in public, I genuinely think they help him quite a bit. Given his condition combined with the relative isolation of our new rural home, it has been necessary to homeschool Chester, though that hasn't really been any sort of a problem. Before I got married, I'd spent a few years teaching elementary school, so I already had the required skills. I've always believed in a somewhat more active approach to learning than some of my peers, and since our new home is located directly next to a forest, this was fairly easy to accomplish. The house itself was rather old, built in the 1920s, if my landlord was to be believed. While recently renovated to a more modern standard at some point in the preceding decades, it still had an air of oldness to it, something in the angles and general structure of the place. The main feature that seemed significantly out of place was the wrought iron fence that surrounded the house, a far cry from the traditional wooden fence I was used to from a life in the suburbs. There was no formal gate that led out to the forest behind the house, just a gap in the fencing with a small pile of rusty iron posts nearby. I never asked the landlord about it, but judging by a stump outside the boundaries of the backyard, I assumed a tree must have fallen down and damaged it. Children don't want to sit still and be lectured. They want to be outside to run around and be active. So I'd always try to teach Chester his lessons in a way that connected with the forest. I'd lift up logs and show him all the squirming creatures underneath so I could teach him all the differences between them. I'd have him count the rings of a fallen tree and teach him about the things that happened in the tree's long and storied life. I know that sometimes he would get bored. While I do believe kids love learning, I'm not an idiot. I know that sometimes children just want to run and play, but I generally do believe he got more out of our lessons in the woods than he would have gotten from a traditional school environment. Even outside of the context of Chester's lessons, we spent a lot of time in those woods, slipping out through the gap in the fence into the forest beyond. There was something so peaceful about that place. It felt remarkably untouched by the civilization that bordered it. I'm not sure exactly how far the forest extended, but it always seemed to go on forever. Like if you just kept walking, you could go the whole rest of your life surrounded by trees. I always kept a fairly close eye on Chester when we were out there. As much as I loved the place, I did often worry that he would simply run off, but there was never anything stressful enough in the woods to make him do so. The only real concern was to make sure he took off his shoes once he got back to the house, as otherwise he would track dirt inside, making quite the mess. Things went on the way I described them for about a year after my husband's passing. In between my caring for Chester and all the mundane errands of modern life, I attended therapy and worked to move on from the loss. I began to make peace with the fact that he was gone. Chester and I celebrated his 10th birthday out in the woods, moving to the backyard once night fell so we could finish off the evening roasting hot dogs over the fire pit while I read him some tame ghost stories. Chester didn't like scary movies or violent video games, but gentle, spooky stories, the sort that send a pleasant chill down your spine, made him quite happy. I believe I was reading out The Mesitant to him when we heard the music. It was a soft, strange sound, a faint piping emanating from the forest beyond, gentle yet eerie. The faint notes reminded me of the sound of panpipes, but not quite. If I listened very closely, I could almost discern a drumming as well. Chester looked out into the darkness beyond the fire, flapping his hands gently. He didn't seem upset or scared, just awestruck. Fairies, I heard him whisper. 
I felt uncomfortable as we both looked into the blackness of the forest. The sound of the crickets had died as soon as the piping began, and we sat in silence, listening to that peculiar and otherworldly performance. It was like something out of a dream. I don't think it would be possible for me to recall the melody in any real detail. It was ephemeral somehow, slipping into the cracks of my memory like water through a sieve, even as I listened. At some point, the music ceased and the crickets returned to their chirping. I led Chester back inside and tucked him into bed gently. I've never been especially afraid of intruders given how far away we are from any major population center, but that night, I double-checked all the doors and the windows in the house were firmly locked. I didn't sleep well that night. I'll admit I'd still not gotten used to being alone and often had difficulty falling asleep, but this felt different somehow. It seemed that whenever I was close to finally falling unconscious, I'd see a shadow pass across the wall or hear something just on the very edge of my perception, something that reminded me of music. Whenever I'd jolt up in bed, looking or listening for what I thought had disturbed me, there was nothing there. At some point, I must have finally fallen asleep because I found myself blinking out the daylight from my uncovered window, groggy and irritable. My skull throbbed with a terrible headache. My alarm clock hadn't gone off and it looked like it had become unplugged during the night. Maybe from my tossing and turning, the cord had somehow come out of the socket. It was late in the morning, far later than I usually woke up, and Chester was frustrated because he hadn't had breakfast yet. He didn't say anything, but he seemed glum and looked at me with justifiable annoyance and hunger. I did my best to prepare him some scrambled eggs and bacon, but in my pain and fatigue, I managed to burn the bacon and cook the eggs to an unpleasant rubbery consistency. I deeply regret what happened next. I swore about the bacon, the eggs, the pan, the stove, the landlord, my husband, anyone, and anything that could conceivably be somewhat to blame for the ruined breakfast. I know it was wrong to react like that, especially in front of my son. I know it was immature, but I was tired, in pain, and just desperately wanted to go back to bed. When I finished with my profanity-laced rant, I heard the back door closing and looked out the window to see Chester fleeing out into the forest, visibly distressed. Shit, I muttered to myself and ran to the door after him, calling for him to come back. I tripped on one of the fallen iron fence posts and fell to the ground. When I recovered enough to stand up, Chester was long gone, vanished amongst the trees. I looked through those woods for hours. As I've described earlier, I don't know how large the forest is behind my house, but it still feels odd that all the time I never saw him. He's only 10 years old, he's not an Olympic sprinter, and the foliage isn't so thick that I could have lost him that easily. I kept wandering among the trees, shouting out Chester's name with increasing panic. Sometimes I thought I'd hear a branch snapping or a child's giggle and I would turn about, desperately trying to catch a glimpse of the sound source. There was nothing there. It was fairly far along in the afternoon when I decided to head back and call the police. Despite how long I'd spent in the forest, it was a remarkably quick walk back to the house. It felt almost as if the walk into the woods was somehow further than the walk out. I opened the door and started moving to the bedroom to get my phone when I saw Chester sitting on the couch, reading a book. I nearly wept with relief and rushed to hug him, apologizing over and over for scaring him, asking if he was okay. I was so happy to see my son again, I wasn't even angry with him for running off. I'm all right, Mom. I'm really sorry for running off. I was just scared. 
I won't do that again. Please don't be angry, said Chester, tears welling up in his eyes. I froze. Chester rarely spoke more than a single word at a time. His longest sentences I could remember before this were maybe three or four words long at most. This was unprecedented. I had no idea how to react. Mom, are you okay? He asked, looking at me with a confused look on his face. The next week went by very strangely. To be very clear, autism isn't something that just goes away. It's not a disease. It's not something that can just be cured. And yet Chester no longer showed any signs of his previous behaviors. His personality still seemed intact. The sort of things he now spoke aloud seemed relatively in line with the sentences he had previously written on the whiteboard. He still had the same love of reading, the same interest in ghost stories. He still played with the same toys. In all respects, he was the same boy as before, except now he was just neurotypical. He didn't have to wear earplugs out in public anymore, and true to his word, he would never run off under any stress. He didn't even flap his hands. He just kept them calmly at his sides. It was surreal. One day I was teaching him his lessons out in the woods and he told me, Mom, I think I want to go to regular school. I want to be with the other kids. I was completely taken aback. Chester had never showed even the slightest interest in going to a public school before, and on the few occasions he'd had to interact with other children, he'd been far too shy to play with them. Of course, I told him I'd be happy to send him to school. What else was I supposed to say? That night, I sent off emails to the nearest schools in the area asking about late enrollment. It was the second week after Chester's sudden and unprecedented transformation that I began to notice something else that was strange. Despite the fact that we were spending a decent amount of time outside in the woods, Chester never left any dirty footprints in the house. It wasn't that he had suddenly become more careful about taking his shoes off. He was still running inside with his sneakers on the same as he always had, but there was never any dirt or mud. I just assumed at the time he must have been wiping his shoes off while I wasn't looking, and in all honesty, I didn't pay it much mind. It's only in retrospect, knowing what I do now, that this sticks out in my mind. He didn't eat as much as before. He didn't snack at all. And whenever I prepared him meals, he only ate small portions, very small. He never showed any signs of weakness or that he was losing weight, so I didn't bother him about it. There would be no point in forcing him to eat more than he wanted to, but it did strike me as very odd. It wasn't until the incident with the mirror that I realized this wasn't my son. I was looking for some books I'd packed away in cardboard boxes in the spare room. There wasn't a lot of space on the bookshelves in the living room, so I tended to switch out the books on a semi-regular basis for ones kept in the spare room, aside from a handful of mainstays. It was while I was doing so that Chester walked over to the doorway and asked me where I'd put his toy robot. I looked up from what I was doing to answer him when I caught something out of the corner of my eye. Something deeply wrong. It was the old silver mirror pointed towards the doorway, and it wasn't reflecting my son. I turned to take a closer look, my words dying on my lips as I gazed at the figure in the mirror, the old terror I'd always felt looking into such things resurfacing suddenly and violently. The thing was dressed in Chester's clothes, but that was the only real resemblance the thing bore to him. It was a crude marionette, carved from untreated and unpainted wood, clumps of bark still clinging to it in places. 
The mouth had a jaw like that of a ventriloquist dummy, albeit with crooked teeth made from sharp flints jammed into the wood. I saw bits of old food stuck to the teeth and mouth, remnants of the meals I had cooked earlier in the day. The eyes were simply holes with bits of colored glass, like marbles held within. It was suspended above the ground about an inch or two by thick brown twine, like the sort one would use to close a package in days before packing tape. I stared in stunned silence at the mirror before turning around, only to find Chester standing there, head cocked, slightly confused. "'Are you okay, Mom?' he asked with concern in his voice. I turned once again to the mirror, seeing the horrible puppet once again. I wanted to vomit as I watched its jaw work up and down mockingly. "'I'm sorry. I'll find it myself. I didn't mean to bother you,' it said before jerkily walking down the hallway to Chester's bedroom. That night, I watched Chester carefully in the bathroom mirror when he brushed his teeth. But there didn't seem to be anything strange about him at all. He moved like a person, not a puppet. And when I gently squeezed his shoulder, I felt flesh and bone underneath the fabric of his clothes, not hardwood and bark. I didn't sleep. Creepy as it may sound, I just sat in Chester's room and watched that thing lay in bed, snoring. It seemed to be asleep. I stayed there all night just watching until it woke up the next morning asking me what I was doing. I didn't respond and left without making breakfast. It's not like it it would have needed it. I wasn't even sure where I was going at first. I was just driving to clear my head. I eventually realized I was en route to an antique store the next town over. I'd visited the store a few times before looking for bits of furniture and the like immediately after moving. I didn't know why I was headed there now, but it felt almost as if I was being drawn there. I pulled into the parking lot and left my car, pushing through the shop store with the tinkling of a bell. I just wandered the store in a daze, looking around all the various bits of junk and knick-knacks with disinterest. The whole store reeked of musty books and wood polish, the smell lulling me into a sort of trance as I meandered among the shelves stacked with discarded history. Eventually, though, I found something that struck my eye. It was a small old hand mirror with the telltale tarnishings of real silver. It seemed to call me, and in my numb state, I didn't even fear the blank-eyed reflection that looked back at me. I picked it up and looked at the price tag. Fifty dollars. More than it was worth, but not too unreasonable. I picked it up and brought it to the counter, paying in cash. The store's proprietor, a thin old woman with graying hair and enormous spectacles, chuckled at me as she rang it up. Planning on making a vampire hunting kit, ma'am? She asked. What? I replied, the completely bizarre question startling me out of my stupor. Just a little joke. Halloween's coming up, and a few years back I had a gentleman come in here and buy all sorts of strange stuff. I asked him what he needed it for, and he told me he was going to dress as Abraham Van Helsing for the occasion. He said he was making a vampire hunting kit. One of the items he bought was an old hand mirror, rather like this one. He asked me if it was real silver, and I told him yes, but asked why that mattered. I figured silver was always the sort of thing you would use for werewolves, not vampires. He told me that the reason why vampires didn't show their reflections in mirrors was that, in the old days, they were made of silver, and that silver was a symbol of purity. He said that if vampires were real and walking about nowadays, they'd be reflected back just fine. Nearly all modern mirrors are made with aluminum. Doesn't tarnish, I suppose. My mind flashed back to Chester, brushing his teeth in the bathroom mirror, face as normal as could be reflecting back at me before recalling the terrifying thing I'd seen in the old silver mirror. 
The old woman must have noticed me go pale. She asked me if I was all right, and I nodded and left with the mirror, driving all the way back home. I got back around lunchtime, and the thing that pretended to be my son asked me if I was okay and if we would be having lunch soon. I angled the mirror so I could see its face and saw that crude puppet mouth wagging in vague time with its speech. I told it to wait at the dinner table and that I would be with it in a few minutes. It did as I said, sitting down and pretending to read a book with its glass eyes. I reached into the kitchen drawer and pulled out a pair of butcher's scissors. With the scissors in one hand and the hand mirror in the other, I walked up behind the puppet thing, carefully angling the mirror so I could see where the strings connected to its wooden body. I looked to see where the strings led, to try to take a glance at the puppeteer, but it just seemed to extend impossibly into the ceiling, passing through the pasture like a fishing line through water. It didn't notice what I was doing until I'd already cut the first string, one connected to its left arm. It screeched in what sounded like pain, a horrible, distorted cry that was a mix of mad piping and a child's scream. It swiped at me with the right arm, but I was too fast for it. After all, it was only wooden strings, and I was alive. I cut the other arm free, and now both fell limp at its sides. Next, I went for the legs, snipping the strings both in quick succession. Glancing up from the mirror, I saw what looked like my son floating in the air slightly, mouth wide open as it screamed. I cut the strings connected to its jaw and head, and the thing collapsed to the floor in a silent heap. The illusion had been broken, and all that lay before me was a broken puppet. Far away in the distance, I could hear the sound of pipes playing faintly in the woods, a haunting melody which I cannot quite recall. I knew I couldn't go to the police with any of this. Who would believe a woman who claimed her son had been replaced by a puppet? I'd be institutionalized at best, arrested for child abuse at worst, and that's assuming they ever managed to find the real Chester. I spent the rest of the day frantically researching on the internet, typing inane phrases like child replaced puppet music pipes or puppet mirror child double into the search engine, getting almost nothing useful in response until eventually I came across some old website detailing European folklore, specifically the page on changelings. I read about medieval peasants, convinced their children had been replaced with those of fairies, how their real children had been taken to the woods to be raised by monsters which stole them. I read of the ways one could protect oneself from the so-called fey folk, of their hatred of iron. I remembered the wrought iron fence that surrounded the house, the conspicuous gap where a tree must have broken through as it fell. I've written this in case I don't come back. I've written this so that if I'm never found, they don't think I just performed a murder-suicide in the woods out of grief. I love my son dearly, and I'm going to save him from the monsters that took him from me. I can hear the hideous music of their eldritch pipes drifting through the trees, mocking me. I'm taking one of the broken iron posts with me. The tip is sharp as a spear. Oh, ominous. Right? That was good. I just made you watch that movie on Shudder. This is not a sponsor. This is just because I love them. Shudder. Um, it's a streaming service with just horror movies, and they have like all the down and dirty ones, too. Um, yeah. What's it called? Um, I don't know what it was called, but... It's like The Hollow or something? Definitely that similar, same vibe. Yep, getting replaced by the Fae. Creepy, creepy. That is creepy. Poor Chester. Yeah. 
Who knows what happened to him? Yeah. Who was the puppeteer? Oh, God. Could you imagine looking up in the mirror? Okay, so there's this whole thing. You look in the mirror, and even if you're staring at yourself, if you stare yourself in the eyes for, I think it's 30 seconds or more, your brain will start to make up things that it's seeing and start distorting your own face to you. Is that right? Yeah, it's very unnerving. Could you imagine looking in the mirror and seeing your child be this grotesque puppet? No, that's that's crazy. Unnerving. Nerving. No, it's unnerving, I checked. <laughs> it's very nerving. Yeah. Spooky. Well, I thought those were all really well done. I did switch up things every once in a while in there. Uh, but yeah, I, I props to you, Priestess of Spiders. Very well written. Killing it out here. Mm-hmm. Get get the little chicken skin going, the creepy creeps. Chicken right, skin? Like, do what? Chicken skin? Goose pimples, chicken skin. Oh, okay. What do you call it? Goosebumps. Oh, that's goosebumps are better than goose pimples. I hear I've heard of goose pimples too. I don't know if geese get pimples, but they, if they do, have you ever seen their skin plucked? But do they get bumps? Goose bumps. You think that's why they? Oh, maybe that's why because it's like goose skin. Dude, that's literally where it comes from. Oh, I didn't know. Well, the more you know. Look at us go. We're also an educational podcast. Chicken. We are a school. We're Classroom three oh nine. We are absolutely not. We could we could make a shirt with that school of school of spooks. School of spoops. <laughs> we could we could do that. So yeah, I would die. I would die. Iron. We're gonna have to put iron on all our windows. Yes. If we ever move out to the boonies. Yeah, we're going to have to do that. We should probably do that to keep people out, too. And put garlic at the front door. That would just attract me. Like, if I saw a neighbor with garlic hanging out their front door, I would wander over and start talking, like, gardening with them. You got yourself some garlic there, I see. Oh, so what kind of bulbs are these? (laughs) Would you look at that? Yeah, would you look at that? (laughs) (laughs) I got some garlic. (laughs) Slap them. Slap the hood (laughs) of the garlic. (laughs) Wouldn't believe what we got under the hood. (laughs) Anyway, yeah, garlic on the doors and apparently old silver tarnished silver mirrors. I love it. Cool. Well, thank you, Priestess of Spiders, and thank all of you so much for joining us tonight in Apartment 309. You don't have to be as good as the priestess here, but uh, if you got your own story, feel free to write it to us. We want to collect enough stories to be able to do a whole episode We cover paranormal, true crime, alien encounters, um, erroneous news articles. You can email us at apartment309podcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram, same handle, apartment309podcast. Like I said, don't forget to rate and review so you can help other people find us too. You can snail mail us. Woo, words. You can snail mail us at P.O. Box 631-728, Highlands Ranch, Colorado, 80163. And uh, we hope you join myself, Lauren. And Eric. Next time in In Apartment apartment 309. 309.